Welcome to the TriTech Games Podcast. This is Bruce. This is John. This is Blix. This is Trav. This is Jay. This is Paul. Welcome to the TriTech Games Podcast, your podcast of going out and getting a bunch of your friends and living together in the woods for the rest of your life and liking it. This week, we're talking about colonies, creating colonies, especially in the fringe-worthy game, but in any game that you might like where you go out and not necessarily create a colony in a wilderness, but definitely away from your home world, your home culture, or anything else like that. If you want to check out something really cool, you need to tune in to the TriTech Podcast. What's that you say? TriTech? What's a TriTech? TriTech is one of the oldest role-playing companies around. They make games like... Fringeworthy. FTL 2448. Hardwired Hinterland. Beach Bunny Bimbos with Blasters. Designed for D20 and Savage Worlds, these games will kick your dice into overdrive. Whether you want to combat the denizens of the underworld, travel the galaxy, get crazy with bimbos, or travel the multiverse and do it all, TriTech has you covered. Go to TriTechGamers.com to see what it's all about. That's T-R-I-T-A-C Gamers.com. And check out our weekly podcast at TriTechSystems.Podbean.com. Or simply enter keyword TriTech in iTunes. You're going to love it. The problem with most of these questions I've come up with, it really kind of depends on who's writing the colony. If the colony is from people who come in, terrorize the natives, and then leave, then a lot of these questions don't make a lot of sense. But assuming that you were actually going there to stay... You're doing the Roman pattern, not the Mongol pattern. Do you think that the colonists would feel an obligation to uplift the surrounding cultures? Of course. Well, they'd lie to themselves and tell themselves that that's what they were doing. That You see that all through history. The people justify it so they can feel like they're wearing the white hats while they're putting their boots on other people's necks. No, but I mean really, Jay. I mean, do you think the people would really do, would do that? You're talking the difference between the Peace Corps and Victorian colonialism. Yeah, the, the Peace Corps versus the uh, Chartered India Company. Or the Romans making one Romans, but more or less. Yeah. Well, I was actually thinking more along the terms of, of people who were taking a long-term look. Uh, you know, we were creating a, a, a colony. We're going to be here for hopefully hundreds of years. And when I say hundreds of years, we're talking fringeworthy here. So maybe more than one lifetime. If it were me, because of my personal biases, I would start that out by setting up a trading post near the portal trading my goodies for stuff the natives had, like, uh, you know, food, animals, you know, and I would be sharing information with them and inviting them to come and play of their own free will, let them uplift themselves by grabbing what they want off of the uh, cultural buffet. I've got a political bias in that direction. I don't know of any historical example where that didn't happen. 
and the people didn't glom onto some of the culture, but have it be sort of a uh, an evil bloodbath at the same time. Actually, I'm wondering if Bruce is hinting at not a public colony, but a secret colony. That is a possibility. Your scout scout, and they tell you, oh, everyone dresses in late Victorian dress. Okay, you show up, as, you speak the language as a native, they can't tell you from any different from any, any other native, and you start a secret colony. Would that be part and parcel to creating your colony? I mean, you know, if you come through and you've got all these high-tech devices, okay, and you're surrounded by people living in the Stone Age... I mean, you wouldn't feel any kind of moral obligation to, you know, make it so that uh, half of their women don't die of diseases and childbirth in their early teens. Where does the moral hell come in where you are living the high life in relative terms surrounded by these primitive cultures? Earth Prime and Victorian Prime. There's a difference in tech level, and there's a difference in knowledge of medicine and so forth. Is it up to Earth Prime to make sure... To get the Victorian Prime to that same level, I would think that people would not argue with uh, with Victorian people going and buying engineering and medical textbooks and hauling them back home. I don't think anybody would have a problem with that. You mean the Victorians saying, "Oh no, no, we'll glad, no, we don't want any of that higher technology." Oh, heaven forbid. They have said that in regards to a lot of things. However, you know there are other things that they are taking on. There is no prime directive yes. in this game. And your colony may or may not have such a thing. So it's really questionable about what's going to happen. You may have a situation like in Zardoz, uh, the movie, where you have these people who are living this very idyllic existence on this world because it's you know their, their environment they set up their environment very nice. Meanwhile, they have this one individual who's decided to go out and create a eugenics program in the Outlands for the ultimate purpose of destroying the colony from which he's from. But he is still doing that without a whole lot of oversight and, and because he thinks he's doing a good thing. So occasionally you want to run an evil overlord survey of people in your colonies. Be sure nobody's getting any bright ideas, bright but overly complicated ideas. Well, you have the anthropologist who wants to prove a theory and, hey, you got cavemen. This is perfect. You know, I, I'm going to prove a theory. So you, you start these guys who are starting a colony, you give permission to the colony for research, only you find out he's looking for lab rats, and there they are. Well, that's a shooting right there. That's just blood all over the cave. Everybody's looking for lab rats when they go to a colony and they bump up against another culture. John Smith and Pocahontas. Is lab rats a metaphor for something I'm not really, uh, I'm not really tracking here? View yourself as a higher culture, mm-hmm. either through technology or through sociology or anything else, or just merely experience. You're going to want to pass on you, what you consider to be your best values to the indigenous species around you. Well, like I say, uh, history shows us how Earth has tended to handle that, and that hasn't been pretty. I would tend to sit back and actually put it into the hands of the PCs and kind of take my cues from how the PCs tended to interact. And, you know, I'd, I'd open this up because you've, we've had a good discussion just trying to define what we're talking about here. I think it would be fun to get a discussion going among players, assuming everybody could handle this without getting irritated or politically motivated, because uh, that could really 
cause screaming matches and, and a loss of fun. Yeah, I, I, I see if you want to sit there and talk about colonies, good and bad, especially the bad, you probably want to bring up your two biggest instances as Asia and Africa. Because, you know, you have Hong Kong, the colony that the Brits had until, I think, what, 99 in China. Then easily 80% or so of Africa is made up of European colonies. Let's see, you had the British, the Spanish, the French, the Belgian. Oh, the history of our world it paints a really not nice picture of colonization. And, it, and, you know, despite the rhetoric, it was not very often about uplifting the natives. It was about exploiting resources in one way or another. Yeah, we, we can all agree on that. I'm just saying that it would have to be the PCs and hopefully the PCs and the players, all of us know our, our history. We will use that as knowledge of the PCs to try to make a better colony, to not make those same mistakes. Well, that's why I was talking about setting up a, setting up a trading post, is because then you're dealing with people who are bringing in uh, mammoth chunks and glittery rocks and things. You're dealing with them as equals. You're not saying, I'm going to bestow this upon you because I am superior, because that's a way to get a stone spear in your back. You want them to see themselves as players and as equal partners because if you don't, that disequality in how the cultures are perceived is going to come out sooner, sooner or later. It's not going to be fun. So what happens when they bring up their mammoth chunks and you start selling them fire water because that's what they want. And they go home and they become an alcoholic culture. We've seen this happen. North American natives and the Irish. Could you reasonably stand up and say, hey, I've got to control this for you because you can't handle it? Would that put you in a position of being the ruler of the Native Americans? Would that put you in a position of being the person who knew better than the Native Americans what was best for them? That's the question. I know from personal experience, from alcohol addiction, nobody can get well for you. You have to figure it out for yourself. So you just keep selling it to them as long as they're willing to bring something that you're willing to trade for, right? I wouldn't voluntarily sell anybody something that they would hurt themselves with, but there's also people who can drink a beer every now and again. How do I know? How, how do I determine that without naming myself their guardian? You're not the only person doing this, though. When you show up, you treat them fairly. You don't sell them firewall. If I'm the guy with the control of the portal, yeah. Most of the people that have done this whole... We'll sell you the fire water if you give us, you know, whatever resource that uh, we see. Yeah, well, scruples aren't yeah, exactly high on their list. A lot of the uh, fur trading posts yeah. were not as bad as all that. A lot of the expansion came later and was based on, uh, there was a lot of racism going oh, yeah. on. Because they perceived the Native American people as a materially different kind of people. And they used that as a rationalization for, for doing really, really vile things. We're dealing with a culture that doesn't see people that way, and that kind of randomizes how that's going to turn out. In the 1830s and 1840s, a lot of the fur trappers and mountain men were not that kind of racist. They were tradesmen. They came in and, and made trades with people because they had to deal with natives who were outnumbered them significantly and had things they wanted, and they respected their knowledge of the land. It was later, after you know, stuff came up, that uh, a lot of fire water got sold, and a lot of it was from the government stores. The trappers saw the Indians as like, okay, you guys have the home court advantage. You know this land better than we do. If we're going to find the good, tra the good furs to get, we're going to be friendly with you. Also, 
we don't want to anger you guys because you do have the home court advantage. The governments, of course, oh, we're a government of a nation. These are just primitives. They don't have the conveniences we do. Yeah, of course the governments are going to sit there and just, you know, here, have some fire water. You know, we got these <clears throat> blankets to keep you warm. <clears throat> you know, Here's this nice crop of poppies for you to plant. That need for resources, it depends on the scruples of the people doing it. The scruples of the people doing it and how they perceived the people they were trading with or interacting with. It depends on the size of the group. Now, if it's just a bunch of trade trappers and furriers, the trappers are a much smaller subsect of society than the government of a nation. So they're not going to be as cocky. Well, then you get into the question of just whose fringe were they and how many people do you have to work with. Uh, if the fringe-worthy limitations stayed on the portals, you'd always have that, we're outnumbered, we better be nice to the people. But in a late campaign, if they got a real high crystal and real high-level crystal and were able to open up the portals to anybody, then you might see a much larger flow of people back and forth, and you might see people setting up. A, an exploitative colony under the idea that we have enough uh, we have enough force to to back it up we can do what we want because you can't stop us would people really think that way jay brings a big uh, a good question what are the sizes of the various populations of colonists w w you think might drive this these changes of behavior you know how large does a colony have to be before they're not going to act like these trappers that Trav was talking about, they're going to act more like the Romans. You know, do you have any idea how many people it takes in order to make those changes in outlook? You need the proverbial butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker. You need a large enough population that supports specialization. Probably minimum 2,000. That's a big colony. But not really, because you need that sort of population to support specialization. That's a lot of fringeworthy people. But we know from from our own past that a village of 50 can can get by. Then are these people rec recruiting from natives to be part of their community and fill some of these specialization slots? Sure, why not? But I, I, will, I will say this, for, from everything I've read, when, when you have non-specialization tribes, about 30 is the number that a non-specializing tribe will reach before it starts to, to be forced into specialization because once you reach over 30, you've got too many houses and too many areas, you know, too many living quarters and too many areas, and you've got too many people living amongst each other. Right around 30, once you start to get over that number, you start requiring specialization. If you're talking about a community where you're going to have a, a blacksmith, you're going to want that to be over 30 because less than that, you don't really need specialists. Matter of fact, you don't have enough people to even have specialists because Everybody needs to be able to gather food at that point. Everybody needs to be able to make their own clothes. Once you start getting bigger than those numbers, like when you get into the 50 range, then you kind of start needing specialists because now your tribe has gotten too big to have everybody be able to do everything for themselves. Now we're back into what's the purpose of the colony. Because if the purpose of the colony is to get resources and ship them back, then that's going to be a pretty technically specific thing and it's going to need a support staff and people who know what they're doing. It's going to need specialists. Mm -hmm. It's going to need a logistics core. Well, you're not going to have that much trouble causing your colony to grow. Let's say that this is a human colony. And when I say human, I'm talking, they could be from any of the human-like races. Are you including humans as a colonist and humans as a natives? Yes, both. 
So what you have then is that you can come through and you can say, our primary goal here is to breed and bring into our immediate colony people who are natives. You can, within a very short period of time, almost double the size of your colony. You're marrying into the local populace. Then, depending upon what your view is on how old a person the majority is, it could be as little as 15 years. We're talking about people who can live hundreds of years now because they're fringeworthy. Therefore, your generations are at the most 15 years, possibly even less, depending on what kinds of technology you have available to you. You go from 200, you almost immediately jump to 400. 15 years later, you're 800. 15 years after that, you're now 1,600. Within 45 years, you've got that 2,000 person colony that Peter was talking about. The human population seems to double about every uh, every 100 years, but that's kind of rough. A generation is 25 years. Right. If you're intent on raising your population faster than that, then it doesn't have to be that long. You can recruit natives. If you recruit a lot of natives, what you'll wind up with is that you'll have a native culture with a mix of the original fringeworthy originators of that particular colony. Unless one of your goals is also to maintain your culture. That could be kind of difficult because it's hard to talk about those things without tripping over that racist issues, without tripping over an unwarranted sense of supremacy. It's hard to define your own culture and then stick to it and not be a to some people about it. I agree you'd probably be taking the standpoint that your culture is superior to the native culture. I think that would be in part of trying to increase your numbers as quickly as possible that way. I wouldn't necessarily be comfortable with that personally, but I can see where people would think that way. I say look in the world today, there are former British territories that are terribly British and they're not Caucasians like Barbados, India, Bermuda, parts of India. They carry on that British culture even though they're not Anglo-Saxons. English is the second most common language in India, and it's a common language of trade. But I think it would have been, it would have been nicer if they could have uh, learned it and put it into use without having lots of people die about it. Right, which I say is the difference between a Victorian attitude in uplift and a JFK Peace Corps idea of uplift. Yeah. The difference well, between the 19th century and the 20th century. Depends on who's doing it. Don't forget that every Blizzniz is fridge-worthy. And there's got to be another Blizzniz world out there. And if they were to get together, they could be a force. A peaceful force, though. Because it will show up in mass at your colony and everyone's happy now. More importantly, I see the Blizzniz as being an important part of any negotiation. Just to keep hot heads from getting hot. Keeping cooler heads to prevail. I have one problem with using Blizzness, and I mean that I have a problem with it. I mean, I'm not having the idiot doing it. I'm having the Blizzness decide they're sick and tired of all this tr- strife out there. They're going to do something about it. They're not stupid. I mean, they wouldn't yeah. have survived as long as they did just with the field. I mean, they'd use it judiciously. Oh, all these Blizzness are marching out, and they're going to decide, one, we're going to force peace because we don't want to deal with the strife anymore. That's still them taking a very authoritarian mood. But also, let's face it, the Blizzniz don't have guns. I'm sure that a bullet travels a lot farther than their calling field. And if I were to see a bunch of five-foot-tall elephants speaking like this, saying, okay, we're going to calm you down now. Yeah, but they wouldn't do that, Trav. That's the whole thing, is that their calming field is just that. It doesn't force anything. Yeah, I know, but I mean, the, the, the way that John was saying it, it was sounding like, 
okay, we're tired of the strife. We're going to go out and do it. And then they just naturally exude it. This would be their philosophy of why they would go out and start spreading out on the fringe paths. Wherever there is strife, let me go there and things will get better just by me being there. Okay, John was kind of coming off as like how the Enchantian incursion, it's like they made the children of the universe sing. And those who didn't want to sing, they used psychology to make them sing. Yeah, that's a little bit authoritarian for me. <laughs> yeah. But I was also thinking of uh, from Farscape, the the race that created the peacekeepers. They had this ability, natural ability to calm people down. The conciliators, yeah. What peacekeepers? And why did they feel like they needed the peacekeepers with guns to go shoot everybody? They couldn't be everywhere. They needed someone to, well, enforce the peace. And then when the uh, the Eidolons were consumed in the time bubble for 20,000 cycles, the peacekeeper, as Yandalao said, the peacekeepers kept peace the only way they knew how, through the yeah. muzzle of a gun. And it's also possible that there are lots and lots of blizzards out there that are different than the blizzards we've already run into, that they may use their calming effect in a forceful fashion. The carnivorous evil fringe Nazi blizznets? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Come over and offer yourself to me for my eating, you miserable worm blizznets. Yes. Okay, that's this one step down from Trent, from Larry Niven, the, the slavers, who basically use their psychic powers to enslave people. I mean, any tool can be turned to evil if by the right attitude. Uh, oh, dear God. Finding an alternate world like hooks up to Trent. I would not want to even go anywhere near that world. Gee, sounds like a great reason to include it. (laughs) The threat are lazy uh, so-and-sos who use their psychic powers to enslave everyone around them to do the work for them. Uh Uh-huh. You want Heinlein's puppet masters. That's an interesting question. If a puppet master takes over a fringeworthy person, is the puppet master fringeworthy? Or are they freed when they step through the uh, portal? Yeah, they would be freed when they step through the portal. Uh Uh, It's a parasite, isn't it? It is a parasite, but it's intelligent. Uh, that's the difference. Then. And the portals can tell and exclude the... Uh, Unless you define the puppet master as only being able to exploit the intelligence of its host, which means it may not be considered intelligent at that point. It all depends on how you define them. Wait, wait there's, there's another thing. You could be so fortunate that that puppet master was one in 100,000 that was actually fringeworthy. Yeah. <laughs> that would suck. <laughs> right. be like, I'm the unluckiest guy in the world. Or the Master universe. Miller made it. Yeah, but when it does the fission, Tweedledum becomes Tweedledee, it would still run into the same problem that it would be the only one that was fringeworthy. Right. Yeah. Though I was just thinking, though, it could be that it, because the way it fuses into your system, it's basically you now. So you really can't get rid of it without killing you. You know, it's one of those things. Because at that point, would that change your signature? Would you stop being fringeworthy? Hmm. All sorts of questions for another show. Yes. And and when we do that at the show, we got to talk about what if you've been infected by an alien? This is Bruce Sheffer saying there are a million, million worlds out there. So go explore them. This is John Ryer saying keep your powder dry and keep those cards and letters coming in. This is Blix. Don't hate the game. Hate the players. And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun. Yo, brothers. This was the Tri-Tech Games Podcast. You know the drill. It's protected under the Creative Commons License 3.0.
No commercial reproduction, no derivatives, and sucker, you best attribute this to the folks at TriTech Games. And if you don't, we'll be after your sorry butts, cause we're some bad mothers. Hi, this is Trav of the Travcast, Hour 3 of Blind Wolf's Rubber Room Association on DementiaRadio.org, Tuesdays, 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern.